This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land. Tonight, how corporate Australia will play a vital role in building momentum behind a yes vote for the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Also, the COVID-infected cricket player, Australia's Matt Renshaw, still hopes to take the field. He reported crook, he's tested positive, but will still be able to play. Well, the game's changed, hasn't it? It's getting to the stage where you just have to learn to live with it. It sends yet another message that we're living with COVID, everything's fine, and that should not be the case because we're reporting more than 200 deaths a week. And South Korea fines Tesla for failing to tell customers its cars can't drive as far in the cold. But it's the heat that troubles Australian drivers. It is really quite frustrating that they will play games to make their range sound better with a giant asterisk next to it saying, you know, terms and conditions apply. Thanks for your company. Advertising campaigns are being prepared and volunteers recruited for Australia's first referendum in 24 years. The national vote will determine whether to enshrine an Indigenous advisory body, a voice to Parliament, into the Australian Constitution. And within weeks, the campaigns for both the yes and no camps will start ramping up. Crucial to the referendum's success, proponents of The Voice say, is support from corporate Australia, which played a key role in the lead-up to the same-sex marriage plebiscite. So what role will the business community play this time, and will it help guide the outcome of the referendum? Gavin Coote reports. It's being touted by supporters as a once-in-a-generation change, and by year's end, Australians will have had their say on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. A referendum will happen during the second half of the year. And Nationals MP Darren Chester, who's been newly appointed to the Shadow Cabinet, is reluctant to say how it'll land. It's hard to know exactly where Australians will go with the vote. I think there's a lot of people who have some real concerns about the lack of detail in how this actual organisation will work. Uh, they would, uh, they've said to me they want to see the Prime Minister release more information before they vote on it. What I'm sensing is a strong level of support for recognition in the Constitution, but very mixed reviews on this question of whether you need to enshrine the organisation. So that, I think, will be the, the debating point as the, as the months go by. And I just hope that we can have it in a very responsible and, and, and measured and civilised way. The Victorian MP's elevation to the Shadow Ministry follows the resignation of Andrew Gee, who recently quit the National Party over its decision to oppose the voice to Parliament. The Liberal Party is yet to form an official position on the voice. While some of the political battle lines are already beginning to form around the question, supporters of the reform hope they'll be able to get the backing of corporate leaders. Thomas Mayo is a leading advocate for the voice to Parliament and National Indigenous Officer of the Maritime Union of Australia. Yeah, I've been uh, talking to a lot of businesses, a lot of corporates, and I've found that, um, you know, there's great support. And, you know, it's an indication that there's support across the political spectrum. I come from the union movement, you know, and, and business and unions often don't see eye to eye on many things. But this is something that is a, is a common goal, I think, across society. How crucial will corporate Australia and the business community be in the success of this referendum? I think the support of the business community is absolutely vital. Uh, you know, many employees, uh, a lot of influence, um, you know, the, the capacity to, to make a, a great difference in this referendum. So, you know, we want to see more come on board and we want to see uh, more action. And uh, it's going to be a big year, you know, building this campaign. 
Corporate Australia took centre stage in the marriage equality debate ahead of the 2017 plebiscite, and some major companies have already come out in support of the yes vote for a voice to parliament. Among them are Qantas, Lendlease and resources giants BHP and Rio Tinto. All of the big four professional services firms have also thrown their support behind the reform. Danny Gilbert is Managing Director of law firm Gilbert and & Tobin and a Business Council of Australia board member who points out many business leaders were quick to support the Uluru Statement from the heart. Corporate Australia does understand that the current proposal in, to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution through the voice is essentially a modest thing to do, modest and gracious. And um, it's not something that corporate Australia has become concerned with overnight. Corporate Australia has been engaged in thinking about this, I would say, for the last several years, led by the Business Council of Australia in many ways. Would some be keeping their powder dry or, or just waiting and seeing how the debate plays out before they state their position on The Voice? Well, no doubt there would be some. Many, though, have not, have come out in support already. But a lot of people will be getting up to speed on constitutional recognition uh, through a voice to the par- Parliament over coming months, its genesis and its purpose. And I think this will be a welcome thing and a very important thing as we proceed towards a referendum. Chris Parker is the director of the Ethics Alliance, which works closely with business leaders. She says advocacy for the Yes campaign needs to be more than hollow words. So primarily, you know, they need to clean their own house, look in their own house. Uh, you know, for example, with The Voice, you would you would want to ask, well, how many Indigenous people are actually employed in this organisation? Do, you know, do you have sort of proactively, are you supporting those staff members and are you providing, you know, culturally sensitive environments that recognise Indigenous rights? Are you uh, you're making positive moves to work with within the supply chain with the Indigenous community? You know, are you living these values and principles within your own organisation? And I think that there's a real opportunity for corporates um, with this situation to provide that environment where they can inform their employees and what would that be, uh, running, you know, in-house or in-business presentations and uh, all-staff emails or, or, or what would you have in mind? Yeah, I, I think in-house uh, presentations would be great. Importantly, they need to be impartial. They need to be balanced. You know, it is a debate that we're having, so both sides need to be presented so that individuals can come to a decision on their own. That's Chris Parker, Director of the Ethics Alliance, speaking with Gavin Coote. Matt Renshaw's comeback to test cricket was plunged into momentary upheaval today after he tested positive to COVID. The result came in just after Australia won the toss, but what caught many by surprise is that he plans to continue the match. It's a stark contrast to how we approached managing the virus this time last year or even several months ago, but some health experts are worried about the message this is sending to other sports players and the general community, as Catherine Gregory reports. It was a big moment for 26-year-old Matt Renshaw today after being recalled to the Australian Test team for the first time since 2018. But it quickly got overshadowed. And he's since returned a positive rat test. So Matt Renshaw has COVID but will continue to take part in the game as Jansen Bowles and Labuschagne can't get a... Cricket commentators on the ABC's grandstand hit the nail on the head. That shows the difference between this year and last season is that we have players now testing positive for COVID and these rumours started to come when Australia was locked yep. arm in arm for the anthem and the welcome to country and he wasn't 
locked arm in arm with his teammates. What's happened? Cricket Australia says Renshaw reported feeling unwell before the match, but his positive result didn't come back until after Australia had won the toss and opted to bat against South Africa at the SCG. Renshaw has been transferred to a separate dressing room and will remain apart from other players on the field too. Cricket Australia is abiding by the International Cricket Council rules, which during last year's World Cup declared the end of mandatory testing and isolation periods for positive players, instead putting the onus on club doctors to assess if someone with COVID can play. But it's perplexing for Professor Mike Toole, an epidemiologist with the Burnett Institute. Outdoor transmission is not common, but it's not unknown. He says while the risk of transmission to his teammates is low in an outdoor non-contact sport, it's only as long as Renshaw properly separates himself from others. And the second concern I have is about his own health. I think most doctors like myself would recommend that someone who's just tested positive and just developed symptoms should rest. Now, he's young, but still there there is some risk for um, someone his age of developing a severe illness. But Professor Toole's broader concern is about what this symbolises. It sends yet another message to the community that we're living with COVID, everything's fine, We're back to normal, and that should not be the case because we've been reporting more than 100,000 cases a week, and that's definitely an underestimate, and more than 200 deaths um, a week from COVID. So we are still in the middle of a wave, and I think we should not be doing anything that contributes to, to that spread. He believes it's setting a precedent for other sporting clubs, including amateur cricket clubs, to abandon their COVID restrictions. The Australian Football League has told the ABC that it will abide by Australian and state government health guidelines so that if a player tests positive, they remain absent from their club until their symptoms resolve. The National Rugby League is yet to formalise its position on this. Associate Professor Hassan Valley is an epidemiologist at Deakin University. If you consider the cricket field a workplace, um, we're asking people not to go to work if they... Um, you know, have a rat rat positive test for COVID, but the rules are different for the cricket. And that that just concerns me because I think, you know, the average person in the the community, you know, would would be confused. Like, what, what is the message about what we should be doing for COVID? He believes that while we do need to move on from where we were during the height of the pandemic, he's not comfortable with the double standards. It does recognise the fact that we are not living in March 2020 and a lot has changed in that time. And so our risk calculus has changed dramatically. But at the same time, I don't think we're at the point where we should be ignoring COVID. That's Associate Professor Hassan Valley from Deakin University, Catherine Gregory reporting. The flooding threat from ex-cyclone Ellie continues for communities in WA's Kimberley. There's widespread flooding across the region, isolating many stations and the town of Fitzroy Crossing. WA Emergency Services Minister Stephen Dawson says it's likely that Broome and the Roper Plain will be isolated by flooding as early as tomorrow morning. Defence Force aircraft are being sent to the region. This deployment consists of three fixed-wing assets, uh, two C-130 aircraft, uh, which can carry 80 passengers, and a C-27, which can carry 30 passengers. These aircraft will be used to relocate residents. 
Fitzroy Crossing is now completely isolated and the only way to get in or out of it is by helicopter or by specialised uh, fixed wing aircraft which is dependent on the conditions at the airstrip. That's WA Emergency Services Minister Stephen Dawson. In the Northern Territory, a sad return to flooded homes is now underway as Jane Barton reports. These items got affected by the flood. The fridge killed everything, very smelly. Most of the stuff like these stove, the bed needs to go, the couch were in the flood. Deborah Jones is one of more than 100 residents who had to leave remote communities around Timber Creek, including Myatt, in the NT's Victoria River area, after a flash flood suddenly swept in two days before Christmas. That was really like rushing flood that comes through, and my brother Daniel was doing the rescue and, you know, just trying to transport people to a higher ground. She's returned home to Myatt to devastation. My daughter's... um certificate from the school, graduation certificate from year 12, my um, family book, which we use at the funeral, got damaged as well, photos, but they, they were all underwater. Charities have brought some blankets and pillows. I don't, I don't feel like I'm coming home. Now we've got to try and replace everything. We don't have the money to buy the beds and mattresses and stuff like that. Catherine is um, 285 kilometres. Once you get items from there, you've got to put it on the truck, and it's very expensive. During the clean-up, and when the rest of her family return, she's worried about the threat of tropical air and waterborne diseases. Red Cross giving us all the cleaning equipment, but no covered shoes. That's the main worry for me, was those other men that come into my house, they had no shoes. My son has a heart condition, and I've got a little granddaughter who was born premature. And the moist in the house is not good for those children and people who had asthma. Traditional owner Lorraine Jones says after almost a week without assistance, they're now getting help to deal with sad scenes. Debris everywhere, like rubbish, like drive into the community and we're just like, nah. You know, I could just smell sewage and, you know, never never walked into a flooded house before, but, yeah, it's... You know, a lot, a lot of people's memories gone underwater. Some people had traditional stuff or their parents' stuff that have already passed away. The NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says the residents have temporary accommodation around Timber Creek while the clean-up continues. It was difficult because we couldn't have access by either air or road into the community for a number of days. But houses are now being assessed for structural damage. There were some that were significantly damaged. In WA's Kimberley, ex-cyclone Ellie has swelled the Fitzroy River two metres past its previous recorded flood peak, and it's still rising. Natalie Davey is among residents evacuated by boat from around Fitzroy Crossing, and she described the scene as water rushed past her veranda. It's coming through like the seaside. There's a, it's a whole lot of water going through my shed. There is a frog riding a wallaby. It's just crazy. Another Fitzroy Crossing resident, Jeff Davis, says it's been disconcerting having his house surrounded by water while waiting to be picked up by boat. You can hear the water gurgling underneath the house and uh, you know, when you see your fridge start to float past you, it tends to make you feel a bit anxious. Fitzroy Crossing is expected to be isolated for several more days, with the main bridge over the river damaged, and flooding is expected in surrounding remote communities. Steve Longin from WA Emergency Services. Nookenbar and Willair 
uh, are our next concerns and are, you know, are likely to be undated in the next 24 to 48 hours. So we are urging people to, uh, to get to higher ground. About 100 people are already staying in the Fitzroy Crossing Evacuation Centre. The rec centre is near capacity, so we will need to look at identifying other evacuation centres in different locations. The federal government has said it's going to supply Defence Force aircraft and personnel to help bring people evacuated from flooded areas, including Fitzroy Crossing, to Broome. Jane Barden and Roxanne Fitzgerald with that report. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all our programmes live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, how Australian-made satellites could soon help with air traffic control. We'll explore the Skycraft project. The metalwork is done in Wodonga in Victoria and Queenby in New South Wales. Our printed circuit boards are made in Newcastle. The software is written in Canberra and the assembly is done in Canberra. So it really is built in Australia. To the US, where a state of paralysis has gripped the Republican Party after it failed to elect a Speaker in the House despite holding a majority. Three times, Kevin McCarthy, who's been serving as House Minority Leader since 2019, was put forward as the GOP candidate for Speaker. And three times he failed to win support from the ultra-conservative faction of his own party. In a piece for Politico, the paper's founding editor, John Harris, wrote... It's emblematic of the cannibalistic spirit of the age and a reminder that though Donald Trump exploited the politics of contempt, he was not the cause of it, nor does he exclusively define it. John Harris joined me from Washington, D.C. John Harris, you've been covering politics in the United States for a long time. How does today compare to what you've seen? Well, we're so used to in American politics uh, describing events as unprecedented because it's been such a disruptive time. But I think this is one that qualifies. We've not seen a, a party being unable to organize itself and elect a leader in the Congress for a long time. And uh, I thought it was uh, quite a spectacle. In your piece for Politico, you say this is a high water moment and vivid evidence that one chamber of the national legislature is essentially ungovernable. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, um, in the first order of business is selecting your leaders, but that's only the start of it. Then the question is, once you have that position, once you have that power, what do you do with it? This underscores that there's almost nothing uh, a Republican leader in the House of Representatives can do uh, because the majority they hold is so narrow and uh, the strongest faction of, of the Republican Party, uh, that is uh, hardcore uh, Republicans, uh, will not give leeway at all for, for its members to actually do anything that breaks with that uh, sort of conservative orthodoxy. So if, if Joe Biden goes to uh, negotiate with a Republican leader, what can he negotiate for? Uh, even uh, uh, Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer on the on the Senate side, how could they uh, uh, reliably negotiate with the House Republican leader, knowing they don't really have any capacity to deliver because they just don't have the leverage within their own party? So that's what I mean by ungovernable. Why has Kevin McCarthy failed to get those on the right on side? At some sort of instinctual level, they recognize. Um, uh, he's not 
one of their own. That is, he is not a hardcore uh, conservative. He is not a practitioner of or a true believer of the politics of contempt, the way President Trump uh, was really such an innovator in the politics of contempt. He does uh, have Trump's endorsement, that, though, doesn't he? He did. He did. And that shows that this movement, this frustration with the establishment, uh, the, the, this belief in the politics of contempt, it's a reminder that it predates Trump and, and may post-date Trump. It's not just about Trump. And uh, uh, the people who believe in this, they, they saw correctly that Kevin McCarthy really wasn't one of theirs. No matter what he did uh, to uh, try to accommodate them or appease them, it didn't work. They, they didn't see him as ideologically one of theirs, and at some level, psychologically, they don't see him at one, as one of theirs. They think he's fundamentally an establishment creature. And that's a huge problem, isn't it, when you've got a, a sizable portion of the Republican Party that are, at their core, anti-establishment. That's precisely right. If you step back just a bit, it's a historic change within the conservative movement and within the Republican Party. This used to be fundamentally uh, an establishment-oriented political movement. You know, the old saying was that the Democrats uh, need to fall in love, but Republicans will fall in line. That old vision of conservatism is effectively defunct. This version of uh, conservatism is uh, is marked by its grievance, uh, by its uh, hostility uh, to anyone in either party that they think represents the establishment. And and those divisions clearly exist very deeply within the Republican Party itself. Is that going to hinder its ability? to do some of the things they they wanted to do, some of the investigations they wanted to do into the Biden administration and some of the top officials. That's probably the one thing that unites uh, the Republican Party is there's almost uniform uh, enthusiasm for really using the investigative power of the House to investigate the Biden administration. It does show that on almost any policy question, they just can't organize themselves around an idea. And they can't even decide what they want with sufficient unity that they can go out and negotiate with. It is effectively an ungovernable chamber. John Harris, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Sure. That's founding editor of Politico, John Harris, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Have you ever had your phone suddenly run out of batteries in cold weather? Well, it turns out batteries in electric vehicles are susceptible too. In fact, EV vehicle manufacturer Tesla is now facing a multi-million dollar fine from South Korea's antitrust regulator, accused of failing to tell its customers about how its vehicles can't drive as far in the cold. In Australia, it's temperatures at the other end of the spectrum that are more likely to impact EV capabilities. Alexandra Humphreys reports. South Korea's Fair Trade Commission has slapped Tesla with a $3.2 million fine, accusing it of exaggerating the range its cars can travel. The commission says cold weather can limit the driving range by about 50%, and that's not how Teslas were being advertised locally. Chris Jones is the president of the Australian Electric Vehicle Association. He says it's heat, more often than cold, that has an impact here. Normally the problem we have is at the other end of the spectrum where uh, if it's particularly hot, the battery tries to protect itself by running a a cooling system if your EV has been built with a a cooling system. And that cooling system does indeed draw energy from the battery. So uh, it also shortens your range, but probably not as far as the winter um, impacts. 
He says the ideal temperature for an EV battery is between 25 and 35 degrees Celsius. So if it's hotter than that or cooler than that, um, the battery won't perform as well. So often the car will have a mechanism in place to either preheat the battery or cool the battery down. How important do you think it is that electric vehicle manufacturers are quite clear with consumers about what the capabilities are of the vehicles that they're providing? Extremely important. And it is really quite frustrating that they will play games to make their range sound better with a giant asterisk next to it saying, you know, terms and conditions apply. Are you worried that issues like this might put people off buying an EV in Australia? I don't think it will. I think most people are smart enough to realise that this is, uh, you know, a very specific circumstance. Um, But it is incumbent on people and manufacturers to be realistic about uh, what the vehicle's range capabilities are. Clive Atwater is a Tasmanian electric vehicle owner. He's not so worried about temperature when getting behind the wheel. Other factors are much bigger. So if you're climbing hills or if you've got a headwind, that will make a much bigger difference to your range than temperature in most cases. 18 months ago, he hit the road, driving from Hobart to Darwin. Mr Atwater says at the time, infrastructure was limited in less populated areas, but it was manageable. So we were typically travelling about the same distance per day as other people with their caravans and cars and boats and whatever else, and we'd see them at the same campsite that we were at, you know, same people at the next night would be at the same campsite as us, so we were travelling at the same pace as everyone else, and typically... Just with that overnight charge plus a top-up, we could easily enough do that. Mr Atwater is also the managing director of a Tasmanian company installing electric vehicle infrastructure around the state. He says Australia's charging network is rapidly improving. A substantial government grants have been provided over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, it takes time to get that hardware in the ground. Um, but it's popping up left, right and centre at the moment. Um, I would say we're easily doubling the amount of infrastructure each year. Tesla was contacted for comment. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. Australian-made satellites launched into space this morning may soon make your air travel safer and smoother. A project by Canberra Space Services company Skycraft will use 200 satellites to close gaps in global air traffic management. Rachel Hayter reports. Three, two, one... This morning's SpaceX launch from Cape Canaveral in Florida has been eagerly anticipated in the regional Victorian border city of Wodonga. It is very amazing. Bart Oates is operations manager with machining manufacturer Ironbox Engineering. As soon as I... uh but up, I definitely watched the launch and, yeah, it was pretty amazing. On board the Falcon 9 rocket were five Australian-made Skycraft satellites. Almost everything in the satellite is actually manufactured in Australia. Chief Executive of Canberra Space Services company Skycraft is Michael Freighter. The metalwork is done in Wodonga in Victoria and Queenbeyan, New South Wales. Our printed circuit boards are made in Newcastle. The software is written in Canberra and the assembly is done in Canberra. So it really is built in Australia. We produce most of the mechanical components that are part of the satellite, so that's from like chassis components, drive mechanism components, altitude control components, and all that 
top of equipment. The satellites launched this morning are the first of 200 to be sent into orbit over the next two years. By putting radios into space on our satellites, we'll be able to provide global coverage for air traffic management for the first time. Mr Freighter says the project will plug holes in surveilling and communicating with aircraft over remote areas. Air traffic management uh, relies on communication between aircraft and ground-based radio systems and that only works when they're within range, which is about 400 kilometres. So it means that there are large areas of the Earth's surface, particularly over oceans, where there is no coverage from those systems. The project may also help make your aeroplane flights smoother. It's about safety, uh, it's about passenger comfort, uh, helping pilots to get clearances to change altitude to smooth air more quickly, and it's also about reducing the environmental impact of air travel because if this technology is used to choose more efficient routes for aircraft to fly, then that reduces the amount of fuel that they burn um, and, as well as the environmental benefits, it reduces costs for airlines. Head of the Australian Space Agency, Enrico Palermo, says the project demonstrates the growth and potential of the Australian space sector. The launch overnight by SpaceX of Skycraft's new satellite is really just another sign that the space industry in Australia is, is really we're at a scaling moment. But Oates says it's satisfying contributing to a global and extraterrestrial project. It's sort of delving into a market that we haven't really got very much of in Australia at this point and we, we really are grateful for the opportunity to work with them to help them produce their products that will ultimately end up in space and help people achieve things. The satellite's commercial operation is scheduled to start in 2025 when air navigation providers around the world take up the service. Rachel Hayter reporting. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports if you want to share them. For now, though, that's all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.